Lord, you will sustain me to the end, that I may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, for you are faithful. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful promise in your word. We know that we don't keep ourselves. But the God who never sleeps, the God who never slumbers, the God for whom we are the apple of your eye, watches over us and you will keep us and sustain us through this journey of life right through to the end because you are a faithful God. And for this we give you thanks. We thank you for the privilege to know you, Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I pray, Lord, as we set out now to embark on this journey through Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the first letter. Lord, we just dedicate this study to you. And we ask God that you will use it as you will to bring a work of transformation in my life, in our lives as a church, that we will grow and mature in Christ. And as the word comes forth, Lord, we will allow it to search our hearts and do its perfect work within us, O Lord. Lord, I commit myself to you and all the other members of the ministry team who will be a part of delivering this series. Thank you that we are covered under the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that our families are protected. Thank you that our church family is hidden in that secret place of the Most High God, that throughout this journey, Lord, we will expand. You will do a deep work in lives, Lord. You will raise up ministries, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that workers and willing workers will come forward in the name of Jesus that this study will prepare us for receiving a harvest, Lord, which we know as we were told even last week, it's ripe, it's ready. Father, do a work in our hearts, we pray. In the name of Jesus, speak now, Lord, with clarity. Lord, into our circumstances. May we not say that this word is for my brother or this word is for my sister, but the word that comes forth, Lord, is for me, it's for us. We take this word to ourselves and would seek by the power of your Spirit to apply it to our daily living. And for this we give glory and praise and thanks to you, mighty God. In the name of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Let's praise the Lord in here. Let's praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Please be seated. So this morning we begin our study in the first letter that was written to the Corinthians by the Apostle Paul. I'm looking forward to this study. I shared with uh, the ministry team about a week ago that I've been through the study and it has really challenged me. It has really challenged me. You know, when we read the Word of God, the Word of God judges us. It's not for us to judge the Word of God. The Word of God judges us and we see in ourselves where we fall short 
And sometimes we get complacent and think, you know, we're okay and we've made it. But, you know, when you read the Word of God, it's like a mirror. And it shows your flaws, your shortcomings. And what I felt God was saying to me from 1 Corinthians, that God wants to bring me to a, a new place of maturity in Christ. And I'm telling you that. I'm just being open with you. God wants to bring me, and I believe he wants to do the same in all of us, to a higher place. Because we measure ourselves against Christ, don't we? Not against each other. We measure ourselves against Christ. And I believe that is what God will do throughout this series. First Corinthians covers a lot of topics. It answers a lot of questions about Christianity and about the things of God. Perhaps questions that we have today, even though it was written around about 2,000 years ago. I believe that as we go through it, we will know Jesus better. And we always have to bear that in mind. Even though it's a, a topical letter, but the whole aim of Paul writing to the Corinthians is that they would know Jesus better. But as we go through, a lot of questions will be answered and hopefully some of the struggles that we have in our lives will be addressed. Paul is writing here to a young church. Theologians say it's about 18 months old. It's an immature church. We know more about this church in Corinthians than any other church in the New Testament scriptures. And as we get into it, perhaps not in this study, but as we progress through the study, you're going to see that there are lots of not so good things which are happening in this church. And we may look at that, that the church in Corinth and think, wow, that's a really bad church. But the, the, the truth is, the more you get to know somebody or something or an organization, the more you see the flaws in it. So we can't be too harsh on this church because we know more about it than any other church. And part of the problem with this church is that they are not impacting the culture. But the culture in Corinth is impacting the church. So the church is supposed to be influencing the culture. And I think we can say the same in the Western Hemisphere, in the modern church today. How much is the church impacting and influencing the culture? I would say probably the balance is the other way. The culture is probably having more impact and influence on the church. So the study that we're going to go through is relevant for today. Because as I look at the church in Corinth, I see lots of parallels with the church today. So this church has some deep problems they're struggling with sharp divisions. They're immature, there's immorality, there's instability, there's jealousy and envy. They're taking each other to court and suing each other. There's drunkenness at the Lord's table. There's problems in, in marriage and questions about being single. They are abusing the use of spiritual gifts. To sum that up, they are a spiritually immature church. And this book is going to help us to navigate 
our way through some of these challenging issues. So this book, as well as addressing those issues there, right towards the end of it, 1 Corinthians 13, we find perhaps what is the greatest exposition on love in all literature. And we read this at weddings, don't we? Love is not, and so on. But really, it's to do with bringing this church to a place of maturity in Christ. It wasn't really written of such for uh, wedding ceremonies, but that's how we tend to use it. And then in chapter 15 is one of the greatest portions in the Bible that deal with the resurrection. It's going to take us a while to get to chapter 15, but really looking forward to that, the resurrection. So it's going to be a profound study, but I believe it's going to be a very practical study. And one of the things the ministry team, when we were looking at this, and I believe we started some months ago, when we were going through the book of Acts to discuss what book of the Bible would we go through next. And we have arrived at 1 Corinthians by prayer, discussion, and consensus. And one of the things that was raised is that it's going to throw up so many challenging issues, this book, that we are going to be looking to have some additional sessions outside of Sunday morning service to allow maybe for questions, answers, discussions, and also to support ourselves as we walk through this journey. So we're not just wanting to educate ourselves. So at the end, well, I understand this, which I didn't understand before, but have we been transformed? If God has spoken to us and we're struggling with issues, is there support amongst the body? to walk through individuals through challenging issues. So look out for some additional sessions. Some of them may be on Sunday evening. Some of them may be on Zoom. We're serious about the things of God. We're not playing church. You know, we're serious about this congregation and those that we shepherd beyond these four walls who tune in online. Um, We're serious about bringing the body of Christ to a place of maturity where God can use our lives much more effectively as part of his plan and his purpose. So the whole aim of this is that we know Jesus Christ better. So don't forget that. We're going to be dealing with all sorts of challenges and issues, but hang on to this. We're going through this so that we know Jesus Christ better. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to just, for the time I have left, I want to set the scene and look at the culture and the background of Corinth, the city Corinth, and then I want to then look at verses 1 to 9 of chapter 1. So in regards then to the culture and background of the city. If you could just put that map up for me, please. Thank you. The city of Corinth is set on a four-mile stretch of land in southern Greece between the Adriatic and Ionian seas with the Aegean Sea to the east. What was unique about the city of Corinth is that it had two ports. 
one port on the Ionian Channel and one on the Aegean Sea. And this made it a multicultural city. And in fact, what shipping companies used to do in that time is if they had uh, cargoes and the ship was a small ship, instead of sailing around, you can see where the, where the arrows are pointing there, instead of sailing around there, which was pretty dangerous and treacherous to sail around there, they would actually dock into one of the ports, take the ship out the sea and put it on skates and literally then pull and push that ship across a four-mile stretch to the other port where they would then put it back in the water and continue the journey. So that meant that there was lots of sailors from all over the world, always in, in Corinth. That's why it was a multicultural city. If you can go to the next slide. So you can see this was done in 1881 through to 1993. That same route where they used to put um, the ships and on skates and, and literally push them and drag them across the land, the French built a canal there so that ships can you know, have an easier passage uh, across or through Corinth. Corinth was a densely populated city. If you can go to the next slide, please. It's estimated that between half a million to three quarters of a million people lived in Corinth. And just to put this in some sort of proportion and perspective, here in Wolverhampton, we have a population density of 8,820 people per square mile. For every square mile in Wolverhampton, we have that population density. In Corinth... Corinth had a population density of 120,000 people per square mile. So if you take the population of Wolverhampton and multiply it by 14, that's how many people would be living in Corinth. So in your house, times that by 14. In all the schools, times that by 14. At your doctor's surgery, shopping, supermarket... Times that by 14. And that gives you an idea of how many people lived in Corinth at that time. So imagine this. It's a wealthy city. It's a multicultural city. Densely populated. Lots of visitors, sailors coming and going throughout the city. Corinth was also a city where you could find any vice imaginable so if you wanted to party all night get drunk get your ganja all the harder stuff the a-class stuff it was all there sexual immorality child prostitution it was all on open display this wasn't this wasn't hidden like in some red light district or in some dark alley. This was open on display for everybody to see in Corinth. Spiritually, 
it was a polytheistic city. They worshipped a variety of gods. And there were 12 temples. At the time of Paul, there were 12 temples in Corinth. The main god was the love goddess, Aphrodite. The Roman name is Venus. And the worship of Aphrodite included sexual acts. This temple of Aphrodite was financed by a thousand prostitutes that would come out on the street every night and ply their trade. And that's how the temple was financed. So these sailors, it was like a drunken sailor's dream port. These sailors obviously would take those opportunities. And there's also other gods. There's one I found called Apollo. And unfortunately, he was a god that was fond of young boys. All this was open. I don't think there's any city in Britain or in Europe that I can think of (laughs) as bad as the city of Corinth. This was out in the open. All this perverted behavior was out in the open on the streets of Corinth. For instance, you know, we have statues in our city and in great cities. We have statues of maybe, you know, someone from history that's done something great, an engineer, a poet. Well, all the statues in Corinth were linked with sexual immorality. So can you imagine taking your son to the park and there's a statue there and he says, Dad, what's that? Uh, Later, son, when when you're older, when you're older, I'll explain to you. So that's what Corinth was like. And also, bear in mind that Paul, when he wrote in Romans chapters 1 through to 3, if you read through Romans 1 to 3, you see that Paul writes about the depravity of man. Paul was in Corinth when he was writing that. So it was right before him as he's writing about how deprived and debased man is. He had that right in front of him. Imagine in the midst of all this depravity and immorality, a church is birthed. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? A church is birthed and Paul is the founder of the church there. And it's interesting to know that with all the problems that this church has, problems of division, pride, selfishness, envy, drunkenness, sexual immorality, Paul always addresses them as brothers and sisters in Christ. Isn't that amazing? Despite all the challenges that they they had, Paul addresses them as brothers and sisters in Christ. And this to me emphasizes the great grace of God. So Paul was acknowledging you're saved, but your lives really do need straightening out. And he calls them brothers and sisters. He never denies them of that. So that's amazing. So we're going to go and let's just begin. I will go through these verses and just comment as we go. So beginning with 1 Corinthians 1 verse 1. It says there, it starts off by saying, Paul, 
You know, when we write letters, we put our names at the end, don't we? <laughs> so you write your letter, and then at the end you put your name. In, in this time, they put their names at the start. So that's why it begins with Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. So I've already mentioned that Paul established the church there. I think we can benefit from our study that we've just come through in Acts, where we've seen some of the life of Paul. So I'm sure we'll be referring back to the book of Acts many times as we go through this study. But if you remember in Acts chapter 40, and just, just so you know what type of person Paul was, Paul was not a softy. Paul was a rough, tough tumbler. Paul wasn't someone that was easily scared. No. Paul was a, a, a kind of a harsh man. Some said he was hard to, to get along with him. He was a no-nonsense, straight-down-the-line man. You remember in Acts chapter 14, after Paul was there and was speaking, that he was stoned and then dragged out the city and they thought he was dead. Acts 14. The brethren then come out the city of Lystra, gather around Paul, presumably they prayed for him. And what does Paul do? Paul gets up and walks straight back into Lystra where they just try to kill him. That's the type of person he was. He wasn't a, a scaredy baby. <laughs> you know, he'd take on anybody. But in the city of Corinth, we find the only place in the Bible where Paul was afraid. Acts 18, verse 9. So that, that tells you that this place must have been quite scary. For, for Paul to find himself in a place where he was afraid in Corinth, it must have been a pretty scary place but in Acts 18 10 the Lord reveals himself to Paul and says to him I have many people in this city who will be with you because Paul saw the depravity of the city and he was about to, to leg it he was he was going to go he was afraid but God said no stay here I want you here I'm going to establish a work here reassures him that he's going to do great work and Paul was obedient to the Lord. You know, one of the things I, I got from that is that when you are called, when you are in the will of God, you can tolerate things that you wouldn't otherwise tolerate. <laughs> yes, you can put up with things that you otherwise wouldn't put up with because the grace of God and the call of God is on your life. So, it would be good if all of us could say in here, we are called by God and we are doing God's will. Because that will help us through our difficulties and our challenges because God gives grace to those who are doing his will. Those who are in the place where he wants them to be. And I say to the Lord, Lord not my will but let your will be done. You know, sometimes you want to kind of abscond and take a runner and leave certain things. But with God's grace on you, yeah, you, you can stay there and fulfill God's plan. Amen? Amen. So we see in this passage here, as was Paul's custom, whenever he visited a city, he would present the gospel to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles 
And this is what he does in Corinthians. You can read this in Acts 18. So Paul went into a synagogue in Corinth. And there the leader of the synagogue, his name is Crispus. And Crispus and a number of Jews accept Jesus Christ as Messiah. This caused a great upset with the Jewish leaders. And they decided to take Paul to court over this before a Roman regional judge called Gallio. All all this is in Acts 18. They took Paul to court because they wanted Gallio to make spreading the gospel illegal. But Gallio says, you know, you bring in your religious issues to me. I ain't going to touch that. I'm not going to have anything to do with your religious issues. So he kind of just overturned the court. The, the Jews at that time had appointed this, this man here, Sosthenes, to replace Crispus. And he was like, almost like the barrister in court to bring their case to Gallio. And when this court was overturned and Gallio said, I'll have nothing to do with this. The Jewish leaders beat up Sosthenes right in the courthouse. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Gallio drove out uh, the Jews out of the court. So this guy Sosthenes, pretty rough deal for him. He just become the pastor of the synagogue and end up getting beat up by the brethren. That's, that's pretty tough, isn't it? But we believe that he was converted to Christ maybe not long after that. And here we find him working with Paul. He is probably Paul's scribe because we believe that Paul had poor eyesight. So what we have here, a partnership of a former prosecutor of the gospel partnering with a former persecutor. Two street man, bad man. Two men off the street. Now running things for Christ. Can, can, can God do that in this time? Amen. God can do that and God is going to be doing that in this time. You see, when we present Christ, you know, sometimes those who appear to be the toughest and put up all the barriers, you know why they do that? It's because the Holy Spirit is convicting them. They, they wouldn't call it that. They would just say they're defending what they believe. But sometimes when people are maybe even angry, when you're sharing the gospel with them and say, this is nonsense and X, Y, Z, it's because the Holy Spirit is dealing with them. So don't be discouraged. God is able to take the, the men who are haters of the Christian faith off the street clean them up and completely turn their lives around so they begin to then propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that can be done in 2023. Amen. So let's not be put off when we we share the gospel. Let's pray over those that I believe that God has appointed for this time. He wants to not just reform, but he wants to transform lives that these two brothers here, like what he did for them, Now they are propagating the gospel. Amen. So why did Paul write the letter to the Corinthian church? Well, Paul at the time is in Ephesus ministering there. 
And then a group of believers travels about 350 miles from Corinth to Ephesus with a report. And this is in 1 Corinthians 1.11. A report of what was going on in the church. So this letter is a response from the Apostle Paul to the report that he has received. So we're going to bear that in mind. So as we go through the study, we will uh, probably go into a bit more detail. But first of all, what Paul is going to do is address the immediate issues. And then as we go through the chapters, you will see that there are some questions that have been asked that Paul is going to specifically address those questions. So verse 2 says, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So note here, the letter is from Paul, and the letter is addressed to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Now, we call ourselves New Testament <laughs> Church of God, and we are affiliated with the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee. So Paul is not writing to the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, or he's not writing to the HQ of the Church of God in Corinth. Neither is Paul writing to a building, because we sometimes call the church a building. The church is not a building. We are the church. We are the living members that make up the church. So Paul is not writing to an organization, he's certainly not writing to a building, he's writing to the body of Christ in Corinth. So if Paul was writing to us, he would probably write to the church of God in Wolverhampton, not specifically to Harvest Temple or Mount Shiloh or Gloucester Street, but to the church of God in Wolverhampton. The word church comes from the Greek word ecclesia and ecclesia is a secular term and it means gathering of citizens in a state or city to discuss and decide specific matters. So Paul addresses the letter to the church of God, the body of Christ in Corinth. And he says in verse 2, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. So here are some technical words which I'm going to take the time to go through because it will aid our understanding. So he's writing to those who are sanctified. What does it mean to be sanctified? To be sanctified means to mark out for oneself. To mark out for oneself. I saw some people last week after harvest, some of you were marking out some pumpkins around there. Don't touch that one. I'm marking that one out. This is a dry one. So I'm marking that one out for myself. So to be sanctified is when God marks you out. You are for me. You belong to me. Amen. So to be sanctified is to be marked out for oneself. To be marked out by God for himself. It also means to set apart. To set aside. So this, is, this person is for sacred purposes. Or this vessel like in the temple, they were set aside so you wouldn't use the vessels in the temple for washing up your dishes and whatever. They were sanctified, they were set aside, they were marked out for sacred use. So that's what it means. He's writing to those who are 
sanctified. In other words, they're marked out for God. They are God's possession. And I want to just add a note here. So, be weary of any group, any church, any organization that says, if you're not a part of us, you're not saved. Because we are not men's position. We have been sanctified, marked out, set apart. We are God's possession. So anyone that's saying it's this way or no way, I can tell you they're a cult. Or there's something cultish about them. We are God's position. We are God's chosen position. So he's right to those who are sanctified. And then he, he says those who are called to be saints. If you note in, if you have a King James Version, you will note there that the words to be are in italics. So whenever you see words in in italics, particularly like in the King James Version, it means that those words are not in the original manuscript. It means that those words have been supplied by the translator to make the flow of reading the Bible easier. So it says call to be saints, but really... What it says is called saints. Did you know that you're a saint? (laughs) Did you know that you're a saint? So sainthood or being a saint is not something that's bestowed on us because we're dead. (laughs) Because most of the saints that we hear of are dead. And also there's a claim that they have performed a number of miracles. You are a saint. If you're in Christ Jesus, you are called a saint. The scripture says, call saints with all who in every place. Not to some exclusive group. Sanctified saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So these people in Corinth, we've heard a little bit about what was going on there in the church. Did they deserve to be called saints? Well, no. But they are saints because that is bestowed on them by God through God's grace and favor. Not through anything they they, they did or they could deserve, but because God has sanctified them and he calls them saints. And the same applies to us today. And then verse 3 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What we find here are standard customary greetings. Grace is the customary Gentile greeting. And peace or shalom is the customary Hebrew or Jewish greeting. And if you look in the letters, it's always grace before peace. Because you can't have peace without grace. And when I was thinking about this, I remember way back in the day, the Rastas used to say, peace and love. You can't have peace without love. <laughs> love has to come first before you have peace. Amen. So it's always grace and peace. And I'm going to read verse 4, but I want you just to note how many times Paul refers in these nine verses to Jesus Christ. 
I think it's about eight times it refers to Jesus Christ. So verse 4 says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. What we see here in, in, in these four or three verses here is quite important. We see a model that Paul is using here. Paul is about to bring some correction to the church in Corinth. He doesn't just dive in there with two feet. And start telling them off and saying, you, you, you're too bad, you did this, you did that. Paul brings forth, before confrontation, he brings compliments. So before he confronts them about what they're doing wrong, he compliments them about what they're doing right. Paul affirms before correction. This is what he does. We, we can learn from this because we, we all have confrontational situations in life, don't we? Where you have to confront somebody because either they've upset you or, yeah. So what Paul, Paul's model here is that you don't just come up in someone's face and rough them up. That's not the way. Because if you do that, you're going to just lose them right there and then. Plugs are going to just go straight in the ears and no matter what you say, they're not listening to you. So Paul's approach was to affirm them first and say, folks, this is what you're doing which is good, which is, which is right. And we also see this pattern. Jesus uses this pattern in Revelation. Revelation chapters 2 and 3, where the resurrected Christ writes to seven churches in the book of Revelation. And he addresses each one individually. But you notice what Jesus does in that portion of scripture. He affirms the churches first, doesn't he? He says, I know your works. I know that you've done these good things, but I have something against you. So that's, that's a good model there to use. Parents, wish I didn't know this um, 25 years ago. I think my son would have had an easier ride. I wish I knew this back then. It's a good model. So bring affirmation and appreciation first in, in confrontational situations. And then, after you butter them up, then you lower the boom. <laughs> Important model. So here are four compliments that the Apostle Paul brings to this messed up, immature church. He said, when I think of you, I think of the grace of God. <laughs> How patient is the Lord with you? I think of God's grace. Second compliment, they were enriched in utterance and knowledge. So this was a church that was endowed and was operating in all the gifts of the Spirit. Wow. Paul says in the third compliment, you come short in no gift. And then the fourth one he says, you are eagerly waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. 
I mean, that, that reads as a, as a pretty good report. And I was thinking to myself, you know, if I was in the place where I was looking for a church, you know, to go to, and I went onto a website, and I saw a church that is enriched in everything by Christ, that they confirm the testimony of Jesus Christ, they come short in no gift, and they are eagerly awaiting the return of the Lord Jesus. I would say that's, that's a pretty good church to go to. That sounds like a church that they really got it going on. Everything's in order. These are the compliments that Paul brings. But this church, nonetheless, as we will find out as we go through the journey, is, is, is messed up. Totally messed up. There's some serious problems there. Verse 8. It says, Who, and that's speaking of Jesus, will con- also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, Paul's bringing forth more compliments and affirming the church. He says that that Jesus will confirm. In some translations, it uses the word sustain. And in the Greek, this is a legal term, a legal transaction to confirm, to sustain. It's almost like a, a, a warranty. Jesus gives a warranty. Jesus gives a guarantee that he will keep us to the end. Now you can tell what a manufacturer believes about their product by the type of warranty that they will place on it. I remember years ago, if you bought a brand new car, most manufacturers was offering one year or two-year warranties. I think it was the Japanese companies, like Nissan and Toyota. They were the first to give you a five-year warranty. Why do you think they, get, they was able to give you a five-year warranty? Because they are absolutely sure that their products are reliable. Yeah? So if you went to buy a car and you said to the salesman, how much warranty you get on this? Brand new. And he said, one week. You would run, wouldn't you? You would not invest your money there. But a five-year warranty means that, you know, this is a tried, tested product. We, we, we know it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to last way beyond that, the five years. So that's why we're giving that warranty. Well, this scripture says here that God has given us a warranty through the cross of Jesus Christ. And through the resurrection of Jesus, that we will appear blameless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful warranty. What a wonderful guarantee that we will get to heaven, not because of what we do or what we have done, but because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. So we are saved and he's also delivering us as we walk this journey from the power of sin and one day we will be delivered from the very presence of sin. So none of us will be in heaven boasting and thinking, you know what, I got here because I was just a sweet Christian, I went around doing this. No, only because of the cross of Jesus Christ will be confirmed and sustained and presented to God the Father blameless 
on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? Amen. And the verse 9 says, God is faithful. Someone say, God is faithful. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You know, the scripture tells us in uh, Timothy 2.13 that even when we are without faith, God remains faithful. God cannot deny himself. The God who we serve is a faithful God. So all the promises in scripture... All the guarantees that God gives us through his word, they are all based on the faithfulness of God. So you take the faithfulness of God out of that equation and we have no guarantee that God will do what he has said he will do. So all the promises of God, they are based on the faithfulness of God. So that means whatever you are going through right now, You may be in a place of of turmoil, a place where the the ground beneath you is is not firm. All the promises of God are based on God's faithfulness to you. That means you can trust God because He is a faithful God. That means you can trust God because He will confirm you, He will sustain you, He is faithful, He will see you through to the very end but we have to give him opportunity to do that we have to invite him into our life space and allow him to demonstrate his faithfulness to us amen and then the scripture says God who is faithful by whom we are called into the fellowship of Jesus Christ and this is probably one of the most important verses verse 9 here in the whole letter to the Corinthians it's telling us that we are called into a relationship with Jesus Christ first and foremost. It's about relationship. It's not so much about the religious rituals and you know, doing good works, dutiful service. Yes, that comes out of a relationship, but sometimes we place the emphasis on the things that we do. It's primarily about a relationship with Jesus Christ. We are called to fellowship with Jesus. That word fellowship is interpreted in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 10 as communion. So we are called to commune with Jesus Christ. In Romans 15, it's, it's there interpreted as contribution. So we are called to a place of contributing to that relationship with Jesus Christ. And in this passage here, it means intimate fellowship. We are called to intimate fellowship with Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. Not so much about what we do, but the relationship we have with Jesus Christ. That's the focus of it. God wants us as we walk this journey for our hearts to be continually transformed and to be made more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And as we do that, good works will come out of that. So it's more about a relationship with Christ rather than the things that we, we, we do and we would count to be religious things. And I wonder if anyone here today is not in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, by the Holy Spirit, you are being called today. 
you are being called to fellowship with Jesus Christ, into a relationship with Christ. And that's amazing that Jesus Christ, creator of heaven and earth, wants to have a relationship with, with us mere mortal human beings. And I wonder if anyone here today can sense that by the Holy Spirit, that God is calling you and you'd want to answer to that call. Jesus wants you to be his personal possession, but he, he can't force his way into your life. You can't do that. God won't do that. God calls you and he wants you to come and he wants you to submit yourself to him and invite him into your life. This is your opportunity today. And I wonder if anybody here wants to take that opportunity to come into fellowship with Jesus Christ. I'm leaving that invitation open. But at the same time, I want to say to us as believers, Fellowship with Christ means to us coming nearer to Christ, drawing nearer to him. You may have been walking with Jesus for 30 years, 40 years. You know everything that you need to know about him, but I'm telling you there's more. There's a lot more. And Jesus is calling us as a church into a deeper fellowship with him when we we focus more on him than even the activities and and other things that we're, we're doing. He wants to know us in that way and he wants us to know him in that way too. Amen. The invitation is open. If anyone is here and you want to uh, experience, like many of us in here, your sins forgiven and you want an absolute warranty, an absolute guarantee that God will sustain you through this life and that when you cross over, because we're all going to pass away from this, this world at some point in time. When we pass out of this life into eternity, the same Christ by whom our sins are forgiven will present us blameless, guarantee, not something you have to wonder and quibble over. We can be absolutely certain if you accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you will live with him in eternity forever. Guaranteed. I wonder if anyone here wants to take up this eternal warranty to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you're here, perhaps just slip your hand up. I'd love to pray with you before we move on in the service. Anybody here, if you're watching online, this is to you also. Maybe just put your hand up wherever you are, in your bedroom, living room, wherever you're watching this service. Slip your hand up. Do that physical action. So God sees you as a a target of his grace, his love, and his mercy. Amen. Let's stand together for prayer. Let's bow our heads together for prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for allowing us to set out on this journey and just lay some sort of a foundation. Lord, you have called us into fellowship with Jesus Christ. We thank you. That you who calls, you sanctify, you have set us apart. Lord, we belong to you. We are your possession. We are saints. We thank you, Heavenly Father. You are drawing us nearer even now to yourself. Drawing us deeper into relationship with Jesus. 
thank you, Lord God. Hallelujah. You are showing us how to live as we gaze on Jesus. As we look at his life. Lord, as we look at all he has done for us. It shows us how we ought to live in this present time. So Lord, may the image of Christ be perfected, be formed within us, Lord. The very imprint of the image of Jesus, Lord, may be pressed upon our hearts. Lord, that we would uh, live more like Jesus in the days to come. And I pray for anyone in this sanctuary and those watching online. Lord, who is saying, Lord, I, I hear your call and I want to answer to your call. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for the conviction of the Holy Spirit upon them now. And I pray that by the blood of Jesus, as they confess their sins, they will be loosed from every transgression, every sin in the name of Jesus. That the burden of sin and the burden of shame, Lord, will be lifted off them in Jesus name Lord that they will sense a, a transforming work begins right now Lord on the inside Lord may not be noticeable straight away on the outside but a transforming work by the power of your Holy Spirit begins now on the inside and they have started now a new life a new walk in Christ we thank you for any such person in here or watching this service Lord, who has taken this step. We give praise to you. And may you, as you said in your words, sustain and keep them, Lord God, to the end of this journey. For this we give thanks and we give praise to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.